This is TDPS. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Welcome to the second installment of our true crime pairing about the Son of Sam murders in New York City in 1977. That's right, 1977. Part of our true crime movie movie time time summer film film festival. festival. We finally figured out how to say it correctly. We're continuing. East Coast Carnage. East Coast Carnage Month. Very good, Eric Shaw Quinn. Uh, anything else you want to add to our little introduction here before I, I take us into a detailed rundown do, of this do movie? Do you want to say it at the same time I do, just no. like all the other things I've tried to say so far no. on the show? You're, you're no. sure? No, I'm, ch- okay. I'm sure. Um, so here's what we did. And this was maybe a mistake. Maybe it was not a mistake. Are there ever any mistakes on our podcast? No, not really. We're just two guys. (laughs) Oh yeah, doing stuff. This is a show about mistakes. A lot of mistakes were made. In fact, maybe that's what we should call the show, or maybe that should be the tagline. (laughs) Mistakes were made. We can't have a tagline. TDS TDS presents Christopher and Eric. Eric. Mistakes Mistakes were were made. (laughs) There was that episode, that installment of True Crime TV Club, where we didn't figure out until about 20 minutes into the show that we had watched different episodes. Right. And last week, or a couple of weeks ago, I terrified you when we were on the phone together and I brought up the Netflix. Oh, my God. documentary about the Boston Marathon bombers. We covered those in two episodes ago. Right, yeah. And uh, Christopher thought I had once again watched the wrong documentary, but it actually watched an additional documentary because I wanted more information. You wanted more information, and you watched one that I knew was three episodes long, which I didn't want to have to watch before recording day, which was like, wait a minute, we didn't watch that. Anyway, everything was fine. No mistakes were made. It all worked out. And then we decided to watch this movie. (laughs) Those were not the mistakes that were made. So here's what we did. Okay, What did we do? This is how true crime pairings work. We do a true crime TV club that's about a documentary special about the case. And then we watch a scripted film about the same case. Film. Film. The next week. And we call them a true crime pairing. Unlike with Zodiac, where we knew the movie we were picking was going to be... Um, very hyper-focused on the mechanics of the investigation because that's what the David Fincher Zodiac film is known for. Um, We knew this movie was going to be less about the investigation and more about the community in the five boroughs and how they reacted to the Son of Sam killings in the late 70s. That's what we thought the movie was going to be about. And what would you say the movie turned out to be? Um, I was thinking about it, and I think it was like going to um, 
a showcase night at Bad Theater Ooh. Company. Like Bad Theater Class does showcase night. It was like five and a half hours of really terrible, mostly ad-libbed scene work. This was not Spike Lee's best work. No, and I think Spike Lee is really talented, and this was not This it. was not indicative yeah. of that. This was a really, really messy, amateurish... It was like watching bad acting class. It really yeah. was. And these were good actors. I yes. mean, it wasn't they were bad. I like Spike Lee. I think he's a talented man. I I don't think there's anybody in the cast that I think is not a good actor. And this was a mess. Yeah. yeah. This was a ridiculous, almost comic mm-hmm. mess about a really serious topic. Really serious. Yeah. And it was, it was just... Like it was, it was one of those movies where I was like, "Oh my god, I wish you had called me." Like, I know the movie that they should have made, and this is not it. Do you want to talk about that movie now, or you want to wait until the end? Because I always like hearing about the movie you would have made instead. Well, what do you think? We should. Wait I think you the should. End. No, I think you should just dive right in because I think that so much of this movie can be summarized. It's about these these guys in Brooklyn who basically end up thinking that their friend is the son of Sam Killer because he's a punk rocker and he's different. And, okay, and that's it. And that's about two and a half hours of the movie right there. They're all dealing with their own responses to sexual liberation and the changing culture, and most of them are dealing with it very badly. There's a gay character on the periphery who will just make you cringe, Bob the Fairy, who, while well acted... Oh, you liked Bob the Fairy. I liked Bob the Fairy, but I was. it took me back to when all you saw was Bob the Fairy in yeah. movies. The gay guy getting beat up, and I didn't care anything about the way he dressed or how feminine he was. I you know me, you, I love feminine guys. My, only, my favorite part of this movie was <laughs> they were all horrible to Bob the Fairy. They called yeah. him Bob the Fairy. They yeah. were terrible to him. They still sold him drugs because, you know, they were they selling... Were selling everything. Everybody drugs, so they said, right. That's how they made their living. So they sold him drugs. Mm-hmm. So they didn't, you know, um, discriminate against him in that way. But pretty much every other way. But then yeah. somebody beat him up. Somebody fucked with Bob the Fairy. Right. went and wailed on the guy who beat up Bob the Fairy because he was theirs. They were there. not having it. They were protective because he may have been Bob the Fairy, but he was their Bob the Fairy. Right. He wasn't somebody else's to beat up. It was pretty that was like, okay, I kind of like that. There was some there was some sexual some sexuality, some playing with sexual sexual lines, mm-hmm. lines of sexuality that I kind of liked about it that I thought was kind of even ahead of its time mm. for some of it. But and I guess I should start with this. The movie I would have told, like, this story was about Adrian Brody's character ultimately being different than people and about people being different than other people and as a result being, you know, mm-hmm. um, victimized by um, the people around them. But right. that's not the way this was structured. This movie was structured around John Leguizamo's character, um, who was this— Vinny. St- this mm-hmm. coked up hairdresser um, who was cheating on his wife, who was Mira Servino. Obsessively cheating on his wife. Because he could not bring himself to have the kind of dirty sex with his wife that he wanted to have with women because she was his wife. Right. That was really. And not because she wouldn't do it. No. We see that scene. Because yeah. he couldn't do it to her because he saw her, you know, it was the Madonna thing. He, mm-hmm. She had to be this pure thing and they could only do sex the regular way and they had to turn off the lights and do it missionary style or whatever. But um, 
That was really, they were really the focus of this movie. Most of the time and effort was spent on that. And it was boring and uninteresting mm-hmm. and repetitive and loud and had nothing to do with anything else that was going on in the movie. This peripheral character about whom we knew almost nothing was ultimately the center of the direction of the. So all you do is you shift the focus. You make this movie about this guy. Adrian Brody's character, who is one of the gang and part of the neighborhood, but who has also found that there's aspects of the world that he's not just buying into. He's not become a Studio 54 Mm -hmm. disco clone. He's actually a part of the punk movement, and he's got his hair spiked, and he's wearing weird jewelry, and they don't know what to make of him. But he kind of wasn't that. He was sort of this... Uh, spoiled asshole who um, mm-hmm. kind of did a lot of stuff. Like he did some. Like he was turning tricks. He was he was stripping. Guys, at, yeah. He was stripping at the gaiety. They whatever they were calling it, something else. Male universe or but something. It was, yeah. But it was the gaiety that used yeah. to be in Times Square. And then he was turning tricks upstairs, like they did at the gaiety. After you know showing the goods off on stage, um, and you know, raising extra money that way. And he was more open about his sexuality and other people's sexuality and ways of being. And so if we could have come to know and understand and empathize with that character, mm-hmm. then I think it would have changed the heart of the movie. Mm-hmm. But because I think it really was 1999, we couldn't actually make a movie about that character. I'll tell you. So we made a movie about the straight guy yeah. instead of about the guy who was a little bent. Exactly. And so we wound up with, but then the big denouement is about him, and the the story ultimately is about the neighborhood's inability to accept him as being mm-hmm. a part of this new culture, this new age that was coming in in this moment in time. And um and we don't care because he's right. lied to everybody. He beat up Bob the Fairy yeah. because Bob the Fairy threatened to rat him, rat him out when he found out that he was— Richie. Richie, Richie beats up Bob the Fairy. Yeah. Richie beats up Bob the—yeah. Yeah. yeah. Um, because um, because Bob the Fairy threatened to rat him out for being at the, the straight—at yeah, the strip, the gay right. strip club. And, totally. Turning tricks and whatever, and he was really. Let me jump in for a second. about that, yes. On the Bob the Fairy thing, because I think there are there are two scenes of him getting beaten up, and one is done jump cuts during a montage where you can't really tell what's happening, and that's when I think the one you were referring to, yes. where you see the men saying to Bob, "What happened to you?" And he says, "Okay," and then they show them wailing on some random Rocco. guy, Rocco. Okay. Um, and then there's later in the film, Bob the Fairy sees Richie turning tricks at the gaiety and and and, and Richie beats the guy up. That's and the so episode. Bob the Fairy is part of the, the gang that attacks Richie, that attacks yes. the Adrian Brody, Brody character at the climax of the movie. It's really yeah. sort of the, the insane asylum because they have become convinced that because he is different, he must be the son of Sam. Exactly. Okay. Here's my theory. My theory is that the trivia section on IMDb is where filmmakers go to post a justification retroactively for something bad they did to their movie that got critical backlash. So these are two facts included in the trivia section on Summer of Sam. Spike Lee was facing a lot of negative feedback from the family members of the victims who didn't want a film being made, which might glorify the killer in some manner. As a result, the script had to be changed, which focused more on the community than the killer himself. Okay, maybe. 
Here we go. In the script, Richie was the lead character and Vinny was a secondary character. But Spike Lee enjoyed John Leguizamo's improvising so much that he ended up giving him more screen time. Do we believe any of that? No. <laughs> I don't believe that at all. None of that. Yeah. You know, totally. like Spike Lee was as homophobic as everybody else in that moment in time. This was when, you know, Hillary Clinton said that... Uh, Marriage was between a man and a woman, and yeah. and President Clinton, people who were allies, signed the DOMA and, uh, you know, instituted uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell. All of that was coming out of the 90s. This was not a time of great liberation mm-hmm. in our views of, of gay people. It was progress, but it wasn't, you know, we were certainly not where we are now, and we have plenty of ways to go even now, but... In this moment, that was where we were in time. And so, yeah, I think having Richie, who was, let's go with sexually fluid, mm-hmm. um, at the very least, because he also has a girlfriend. Um, right. Jennifer Esposito, um, who is kind of a, you know, tramp in her own right. So mm-hmm. she has her own sort of sexual differences as well. Right. Everybody is dealing with their, dealing with being different right? Um, in the course of the movie. And- the son of Sam becomes sort of this incidental backstory. Like it is going on in the city around them. So you're seeing the kind of heightened insanity that is built up around the hysteria that was growing around those crimes, mm-hmm. which we did talk about last week and which was actually historically, factually right, part right. of what was going on um, at the time. It was frightening to people and they, they didn't know what to do or where he was or where he was coming from. Last week I asked you, I was setting you up for this. I said, does this case call to you creatively in any way? Would you would you write a movie about this case? And you said, no. And I think that makes clear that if you just focus in on some of Son of Sam, you don't have a movie. You don't really have a compelling story. You don't have a movie that says anything new about serial killing that isn't already in the in the culture that we that we've all talked about a whole bunch already. So okay, you widen the camera out and you try to tell the story of the community, but the question then becomes which people in the community? Which community? I, I think the successful version of this movie is called My Beautiful Launderette. Oh, interesting. It's yeah. about, um, oh, God, his name has gone out of my mind. Who's the the actor? Um, Daniel Day-Lewis. Daniel Day-Lewis, yeah. right, is is Richie. Yeah. And he's... He ends mm-hmm. up getting into a relationship with another man in the, in the course of the movie, and it... He's, you know, is he different because he's a punk or is he different because he's sexually fluid or is he different? It's about being, having the, the courage to be different right? Um, in the conformity, the oppressive conformity of culture, the culture around you. And that to me is a more interesting version of this movie. And it didn't include any serial killers. You know mm. what I mean? So like, I don't think that was an important, it's not an important part of the story. It's almost a comic part of the story. Like the character, um, the son of Sam character in this is kind of played for laughs. Yeah, which is weird. It's weird and here's when again, I knew disturbing. Here's when I knew things were going to get really weird. I was watching the movie. I was getting bored. I was looking down for my screen, and I was like, "Okay, I'll get the IMDb page open because I needed to see who the hell all these people were because there's so many characters, so many actors, and I know that the name of the dog, Sam." The son of Sam had a neighbor named Sam who he became fixated on, and they had a dog named Harvey, and Harvey wouldn't stop barking. And when I saw in the credits on IMDb that John Turturro was going to be the voice of Harvey the dog, I knew shit was going to get weird. (laughs) 
I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co-host and best friend, Christopher Rice, also known as steamy romance author C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th, along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring. It's available wherever ebooks are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher. So this movie... <laughs> yeah, we mostly see Sam tossing and turning in bed while the dog right. barks. This is the movie that really makes the case for Son of Sam was the fault of irresponsible dog owners. Right, So yeah. if you own a dog and it barks all the time and you don't do anything about it... Son you of could, Sam you could, could be the result. You could literally drive your neighbors crazy. Yeah, that's I'm, apparently what this movie implies. If you yeah. do that in West Hollywood, you can actually get in trouble with the law. So right. they'll take your dog away from you. So yeah. you should, if you live here, take that as a warning. I actually know that for a fact. Um, so there is actually a scene. Because I'm the crazy neighbor. Because there is a scene in this movie where the dog, Harvey the Labrador, appears in the apartment of the killer, David Berkowitz, and speaks to him <laughs> in the voice of John Turturro. John Turturro, as I said earlier, is the voice of Harvey the dog and says to him, go out and kill people. I think that's what he says. At that point, I was laughing so hard because the dog was talking, John Turturro, as the dog was talking, and I was like, is this a Saturday Night Live skit? Am I supposed to be taking this seriously? Nothing about this works. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Oh, my God, this movie. Yeah. Um, Basically. So, okay, so we've talked about the movie that that you would make. The movie that I would have made. Ah, yes. And I don't think it is a real story, and I don't think it play, I think it would have to be its own movie, as with your My Beautiful Andrade example. Mafia tries to find serial killer operating in its own neighborhood. Like, criminal enterprise attempts to track down and defeat chaotic criminal mind of a different sort was to me like there is a whole storyline here that's really never threaded out where Anthony LaPaglia as the detective uh, who used to be an errand boy for the local mafioso goes to him and says we need your help this guy's stalking the community we need whatever they don't Eric <laughs> is miming waking himself up well it was all like the setup for this movie that never happens and then all that you see happen is the mafioso arms the community with baseball bats when there's a blackout the blackout is thrown in and I'm like I didn't I didn't know this was an integral part of this story and it was all done in a series of ad-lib stereotypes that you would be put under the jail for doing today this movie could never got made today, yes. and it probably shouldn't have gotten made then, yeah. but it was the most offensive series of bits and stereotypes. and right. got, It was very 90s. It was very 90s. Let's the talk about that. Diner, and there was a whole host of movies right. that kind of played up this kind of, hey, uh, uh, you know, uh, Goodfellas. Right, Goodfellas. <laughs> you watch the Goodfellas with you, with a family member. <laughs> Tell that story. It's my favorite story about my It's not my favorite story about my mom, but it's one of my favorite stories. My mom is, you know, 
She's this little Southern lady. She is. She mm-hmm. is who she is. And she was patient with us. I'm, you know, you've heard the show. I'm not the most reserved or the best with my language. <laughs> um, potty mouth, I think, is the, um, I, but I, that's so disgusting to me. That's, that's disgusting. Sounds, I hate like that a hazing term. ritual. Yeah. But, um, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> make it worse, Christopher. Um, I always make it yeah. worse. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. So, you know, not given to a lot of swearing. She will say, God, Damn it. At the Ooh. absolute worst. And that means sit down and shut up because you're not going one step further or this is going to get really ugly. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the big warning. But, you know, beyond that, no, nothing else. Yeah. And um, I watched Goodfellas with her. It was just the two of us in her den watching that movie. And we'd been sitting there. We were sort of like in stunned silence watching that movie. If you've seen it, it's long and it's profane and it's this, you know, Guido, good old boy, mm-hmm. um, shtick. Right. I don't even know where the, what other better way to say it. I think that's the one. Where, are you laughing at me? I think mm-hmm. that's from Goodfellas. Yeah. All of those stereotypes mm-hmm. that get played over and over again. Most of them are in that movie. Um, so we're sitting there and mom turns to me and she said, so how long do you think this fucking movie is going to last? And I <laughs> lost it. Right. I, my mother has never said anything even remotely like that. And I laughed until I cried. And mm-hmm. it was very much the case with this movie. It was just jam packed with that sort of, you know, shorthand cultural, racial, mm-hmm. sexual stereotype of everybody doing a bit. And because it was, I think, largely unscripted. Yeah. If Apparently in your yeah, trivia if thing. Yeah, if John Leguizamo was ad-libbing these scenes and that's what won him yeah. more camera I mean, they time, were then yeah. so annoying and yeah. repetitive because it, when you take the writer out of it, you're not moving the story along. You're just jumping the scene, which is a great way to get to the emotional heart of it as an actor when you're doing it. But when you actually perform it, there's a script and a story to be told, and you can do that more effectively and more efficiently if you're using the words that have been laid down to you by somebody who has taken the time and the effort to think that all the way through. So mm-hmm. you're not saying the same thing 25 times in a row. Right. And you're not playing the same scene over and over again. You're playing the scene that needs to be played to move on to the next level of the story. And that doesn't happen here. Yeah. This is just this muddy churning. And then eventually you arrive at the climatic scene where they've actually already caught the um the serial killer and mm-hmm. the neighborhood guidos are jumping the punk rock sexually fluid guy to take him to mm-hmm. the mafia guy to turn him over as as being the son of Sam because they think they've caught him but they're just morons mm-hmm. and they're that's what they're doing is their moron shtick right yeah so it's I, like the three stooges yeah and I and I, I like I I think that there Except was not entertaining I think part of it is. Okay, there was a run of movies during this period that were actually, I think, quite good and kind of served as the basis for what would become cable television, prestige television, with mov- with series like Boardwalk Empire and The Sopranos. There were movies like Copland with Sylvester Stallone. There were a lot of Miramax movies. People were making really good movies about New York, and I think this wanted to be one of them. And they were making them at the end of the 90s and the beginning of the aughts. What are, how, how are we going to refer to that? The early 2000s? I don't know. But they were making them, and I think they had a weird form of nostalgia in them 
for the fucked up New York City we were talking about on our last episode. Oh, New York was cooler when you didn't know if you were going to live on the walk home, or it was so much more artistic and cultural, and now it's just Disney-fied, and it's blah, blah, blah. There was this thing going on with a lot of New York filmmakers. I saw the Newsweek review at the time called this movie Feel Bad Nostalgia, which I thought was <laughs> really appropriate. <laughs> you know, and, um, and so I saw the ambition... You know, and I also saw that those movies, which I think were better, those kind of comparisons, um, have kind of gone away. They've become limited series. If somebody wants to make a movie like Copland today, they would make it as a limited series on one of the streamers, you know. But um, I, I thought it was interesting to look at it because the movie opens in the present day with the actual Jimmy Breslin, the, the New York uh, Post columnist, I believe, who was getting the letters from Son of Sam. Right. Narrating for us, like we're about to see a documentary, and it's pretty badly done and he's very stiff and he's cl clearly reading a teleprompter and uh, he also does the closeout of the movie and it's like okay what you've seen is just historical record and it's like no I don't think so not really yeah. no I don't think that's really a very fair thing and I think that's the thing that we haven't gotten enough perspective on mm -hmm. like Chinatown is kind of an amazing one of my favorite movies it's kind of an amazing picture of a moment in the history of this place. Right. Where... Meaning Los Angeles. Los Angeles. You were touching the yes, table, so... being this place, yes. yes our table, Yeah, the Los history Angeles. of this table <laughs> here in Los Angeles. No, history of Los Angeles. Um, and I don't... And I've seen movies about time periods in New York, you know, that, that happens, mm -hmm. where you get the sense of that moment in time. And either we haven't gotten there, we haven't gotten enough perspective yet. I don't know that I know of one from this period that really does it for me. Like, I always talk about pictures of movies about Studio 54. Always want to talk about, glamorize this moment in history that's not really terrific. Mm -hmm. Like, I was, I was living there then. Like, people, we did not think it was that big a deal. Mm -hmm. It was the center of the universe in these movies and this glamorous, amazing place where, you know, like... I, the great sexual liberation of the 70s that killed millions of people because this horrible sexually transmitted illness, you know, became a part of our community at the same time that we were finding our sexual liberation for the first time. Like, that's not a very happy story. And mm -hmm. so looking at it nostalgically is, oh, it was so much freer than no, it wasn't. It mm -hmm. was a time when we maybe picked the wrong things and it there was a terrible price to be paid for it as we found our way mm. to a greater freedom. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like nobody was, nobody's like depicting gay marriage that way, but that's mm -hmm. probably a much greater freedom for us mm -hmm. than being able to fuck anybody you want in the bathroom or the alley or whatever. Nothing's wrong with that. And if that's what you want to do, that's great. But I don't know that it's a particularly great leap forward mm. socially. And I'm, I'm still waiting to see. I don't know. Do you have examples of movies from the of this time of period? Of this time period, no. But I'm not as I'm not as sophisticated and well versed about about it because I was born in 1978. <laughs> but I, I think that um, I listen to people who lived through that period, and I I think um, I would say that Ryan Murphy did a mini a limited series about Halston. I don't know if you've seen it with with Ewan McGregor. I really enjoyed it, and I thought. The, the that Studio Fifty Four becomes the scene of their breakdown. 
the breakdown of the relationship, particularly with him and one of his co-designers, whose name I'm blanking on, the Italian woman who was so fabulous. Like, they show, rather than Studio 54 being the center of the universe, as you said, it's where they all overindulge and begin to ruin their lives, which was, I thought, kind of the first time I had seen it depicted that way. You know, they have a, he has a horrible fight with her over whether or not she's really in love with him, and he just savagely attacks her inside of Studio 54. And I thought, right. well, okay, that was maybe the beginning. Um, but I think you're right. I think there's been an ongoing sense of this as a golden era as opposed to a first chapter, which is really, I think, how you're describing right. it. Right. And I think there's golden parts of that, right. and I haven't seen them really depicted. I think that I had two parents who had lived through the 60s and the protest movement in the 60s who never felt that it was accurately depicted mm -hmm. on, on film. You know, and uh, I went back and did readings of books like Season of the Witch uh, by David Talbot, I believe is actually his name. Yes, I think he has the same name as the Anne Rice character, <laughs> who wrote a history of, of what San Francisco was really like during that period, that um, the hippies in the St. Ashbury, uh, hate Ashbury, excuse me, were getting sick with easily treatable diseases, that the groceries in the communal co-op were spoiled and making people sick, that the, there was there were great ambitions and ideals, but the execution often bred chaos and injury and harm. And so I think that, that was not the narrative of the 60s that I grew up with as a young person in San Francisco. Everybody was talking about it like it was just music festivals and it was all perfect and it was all everybody coming together. When the truth was there was some really dark stuff always stalking the edges of and it. And it was still the 60s. Yeah. Like... It was it was a great time if you were um, a straight wealthy white guy. Yeah, absolutely. Like, that really hadn't changed, and really is still kind of the you know, <laughs> kind of the baseline. Yeah. But we're starting to include other groups more and more as time has passed, and not as coincidentally, you know, as a part of what began during that time period. So it is that that progression. It's the it is as I as we were both saying. You know, there there are golden moments, but I'm not seeing them depicted yet. What's interesting to me, I'm going to everybody drink. We haven't done this in a while. Make this about me. I, I am, and trust me, this is relevant. I am sort of trying to get more of a handle on a TikTok presence, right? And we've all we've joked a bunch on the podcast about how TikTok is for the children and all that sort of stuff. And a lot of it has been about seeing what young queer male book talker TikTokers are about. And they are not about the type of books that I was about when I was their age because the type of books that they're about didn't exist. It was not possible to buy a lush, beautiful, uplifting fantasy novel with two male leads when I was 18 years old and newly out of the closet, but it is now. And the books that they want have these... Um, the depictions of the type, it's not depictions of marriage necessarily, but depictions of healthy relationships that in which both male heroes are going to actually care for each other and watch out for each other. Most of the books that were available at the time were, with the exception of Say Uncle, your novel. Thank you. Were, um, and a few others. Well, and a few others, but most of them were, were, they were necessary and they were urgent and they were political and they were about the AIDS crisis and they were about surviving the AIDS crisis and everything that came together and assembled during that period. And that's what most of the fiction, quote unquote, was about. Books like, uh, like People in History by Felice Picano, which is a favorite of both of ours. Love that book. It's a chronicle of that period and through the point of view of two gay cousins who tried to maintain a friendship throughout. So, but but Je I feel really old looking at these young men, but I also feel like, thank God, 
they have this. You know, thank God they right. have this because and I do think it's an advance. One of the what things I that I saw as my as my responsibility in that time period was to write Say Uncle yeah. so that it was a beginning place. You know, here let's have a book that's about a man, a gay man raising a child. Right. Yeah. Like there's books about gay men having sex with each other. So that's great. But what about doing something that depicts gay people in a way that we haven't seen that's mm-hmm. aspirational? I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? So getting back to the point you were making about the idea of writing aspirational stories about gay people, but uh, about anything, really, I I think it is why I inevitably, when it comes to movies about true crime cases, find myself more in love with the story of the investigators, because I ultimately want to align myself as an audience member with the higher ideal of of some form of justice or some form of at least making the streets safer in, in in a real way. You know, not in some bigoted, oppressive way, getting a monster off the streets. And so when the story wanders into the community being driven crazy by the presence of a monster, it turns into Jaws without the boat in the end. You know what I mean? And just go a little (laughs) crazy, like go get the fucking shark. And I know there's a long history of we got the wrong shark stories. The Oxbow incident is probably the most famous one. I saw that as a little child. I don't know if you've ever seen that. but I don't think I have. I'm about to spoil the Oxbow incident. The whole story of the Oxbow incident is these vigilantes in the Wild West basically put, on, put this criminal on trial in the town square, string him up, hang him, and not five minutes later someone rides up and reveals that it, they murdered the wrong guy. And the movie ends with the slow pan of all of the faces of these people who were so righteous in their conviction that they had the right guy, realizing their decision is irreversible as the guy sways from the tree right next to them. So this doesn't end with the death of Richie, but that's kind of kind of the moral of this story, right, is that fear will lead you in the direction of the wrong guy or it will lead you on a witch hunt, you know, as opposed to – and it's like, okay, but I still want to get back to that story of what it, what does it take – to kill the monster or to at least capture the monster. You mean in terms of what movie you're making? I'm ta- yeah, any movie. Like I would have preferred – I would have watched Anthony LaPaglia and his partner 
for two and a half hours if they had actually been working on the case. God knows the Zodiac movie by David Fincher is longer. It's almost two, two and a half hours. But it is about people who will not give up until this darkness has been at least addressed at least addressed, if not dressed down. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I do. I th- I do know what you mean. I, I think the problem with this particular story is this guy was busted because that woman would not let up on the parking ticket. You then know tell I mean? her story. Tell her whole story. I don't care if her whole life was boring. I want to hear her story. Well, right. right. The woman like, who wouldn't give up. The one who won't, the woman who wouldn't give up on her parking. Like that's the that's the story of the changeling, which I actually really love. Right. That's a movie about getting the monster off the street. Absolutely. Because people just would not stop doing the right thing, and she gets persecuted even though she's trying to stop the right thing. That's a brilliant movie. It's yes. one of my all time favorites, and it is a true story. Yes. Of of that terrible serial killer. Let's tell the parking ticket story because I think we told it last week on the last week's episode. The thing that caught the sun of Sam Killer, David Berkowitz, was that the night of his killing, a woman was walking her dog. She saw a scary guy carrying something scary that she thought was a weapon. It turned out it was David Berkowitz. She screamed and ran back into her house. There's She hears gunshots a few blocks away, which turn out to be the gunshots that murdered one of the victims. She reports it to the police, and she says, I saw this guy get a parking ticket. I saw it on his windshield. The police, they go and they check the records. There's no record of a parking ticket in that area. She says, I saw the ticket. So they go back and they check again. They go back to her. They say, we haven't found it. She says, you're wrong. I saw saw it. You did an impersonation last week. It was brilliant. Go listen to that episode if you want to hear it. Um, And they go back and check a third time. And sure enough, there's a parking ticket that was written out to a Ford Galaxy owned by David. As I pointed out, because they were afraid to tell her not because they weren't going to do it because she was not taking no for an answer. And that's what. So it doesn't make for a really remarkable investigation story. Mm -hmm. That's not there was not a big breakthrough. There was not a great lead. There was not because there wasn't a lot to really lead them to him other than that, because. His crimes were so unmotivated, and there was so little to connect them. Yeah, he was. So, it was so completely random, other than his insatiable desire for attention. And as a result, he's not even. He's hardly a part of this movie. Right. He like, really is. I don't know that we actually saw the actor's face until he was being arrested we we and didn't. marched into the um, into the police station um, at the end of the movie. Like I, he was that, he was that irrelevant to the story. This was a story about the impact of that insanity on the neighborhood, and I guess the rise of a vigilantism. But also for me, it was about um, finding people guilty because they were different, seeing yeah. people as guilty of something because they were not the same as everyone else. But that's also not the story they told. They told the story of. Vinny and a guy who can't stop cheating on his wife. Yeah, that's the story they really told. And the the other story that was really the story I think this movie was about was sort of incidental and not for nothing. The guy who the story was really about wasn't particularly likable. There was nothing. He was lying to everybody. He was kind of hustling and getting goodbye. There's nothing wrong with that. But he wasn't this ideal character either. So there was no real reason to see him as being any more than or better than anybody else. He beat up other people that he beat up because they were threatening to tell the truth 
horrors. Well, the thing that, that that they start off with, which they then abandon, is that, you know, John Leguizamo in the opening of the movie has basically snuck out of a nightclub with his wife to go literally have sex with her cousin in a car. And then later, they, when he's driving the wife home from the club, they pass near a crime scene, the son of Sam, one of the son of Sam's murders. He approaches the car and almost touches one of the bodies before the police stop him. And then he becomes convinced that the whole thing was that he was supposed to be the murder victim, and it was supposed to be punishment for cheating on well, his they, wife. They were the murder actually took place where he was cheating on his wife. Right. Yeah. Like he's parked in a car, screwing the his wife's cousin when a car pulls up behind him and begins flashing the lights and blowing the horn, and he's pissed off, and they drive away. And then the That's couple right. in the car says, oh, can you believe them doing that in front of your parents' house? And they're sitting there talking, and the son of Sam comes back and kills them. So the son of the Sam was already stalking him, and he just pulled out of the way, and this other couple got killed instead. And he realizes that when he sees this other couple dead that pulled up behind him and that if— there by the grace of God, had he not pulled away, right. it might well have been him. And so I think he sees that there are consequences to his bad choices. And so he feels terrible about them, not enough to stop. Also, Never stops. oh my God, could you believe that was B.B. Newark? No. I thought I kept, it was Donna Murphy at first. I kept looking at the actress going, she looks really familiar. Yes, it but, was like, oh, my yeah, God. She was this young, sexy babe. Not that there's anything unsexy or terrible about Well, she had a Newark wig now, on, and she, she was, was yeah. This, it was a very different. It was a long time ago. Yeah. And she looked, they all do. Everybody is such a baby in this. It's yeah. really kind of funny. Uh, the, the funniest was Adrian Brody looks like a child. Um, and John Leguizamo's butt looks ready for Instagram. He flashes his butt a whole time. I was like, wow, that, those yeah, were the days. Yeah, they, they were yeah. much younger. Mira Servino is this young girl. It's really, mm -hmm. it's funny, but it's, you know, it's 25 years ago. So yeah, yeah it was a while, but, but they were very much um, the, 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 the way in which this story was told. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you nailed it on the head with the ad-libbing thing. According to the trivia on IMDb, the breakup scene between Mira Servino and John Leguizamo in the park was also all ad-libbed, and it totally feels that way because they just say the same line over, over and over. And and over and over again. again. It just drove yeah. me crazy. It was just so poorly done. And so I would really, like I say, I would have refocused the movie. I would re the focus. But I probably wouldn't have told this story before be at all because it's not a very interesting story. The part that's interesting isn't real. Mm -hmm. And this is part of why I'm not the biggest nonfiction guy. Mm -hmm. Like, true crime is my big exception on nonfiction. Like, I've never seen this movie before because I know how this story turned out, and I'm not that interested yeah. in watching a, a movie about it. And I had never seen Patriot's Day before because I knew how that story turned well, out. Well, what about Zodiac? Because you were a huge Zodiac movie fan before we watched it. We'd both seen it before. I did see Zodiac before, but that's because I'm in love with David Fincher. Okay. That had to do with respect for the director. I think yeah. he is incredible. It's like there are two or three. There's If Ridley Scott makes a movie, I'm seeing it. I mean, mm -hmm. and he's even made some movies that I think are, you know, actually bad, and I don't care. They're yeah. still better than most people's movies. Like, there's some directors that I'm just going to see. There's some actors that I'm going to see. One of my favorites is when um, uh, Mark Wahlberg and oh, the it was the David O. Russell uh, boxing movie, the um, uh, Empire of the Sun. Oh, Christian Bale. Christian Bale. And the Fighter. The Fighter, yeah. yeah. 
Christian Bale and um, and Mark Russell Mark well, Mark Russell Mark Wahlberg ran it, and I saw it, and I went, and I hate boxing movies. I just I don't understand boxing. Like it's fine if other people like it. I just think it's people punching each other in the face. Yeah. I, I don't know why I would want to see that. Right. Um, but that's and I was like, God damn it, I'm gonna have to see this movie, and it was brilliant, mm. and I'm not sorry, but it was a boxing movie, and so there's some people that I make that exception for. So despite the fact that Zodiac was at some level reality, it was David Fincher. And so there was no way I wasn't watching. What? Okay. Putting you on the spot. If there was a crime in history that you feel has not been made into a good movie, what would you, what, which one is it? And would you make it into a movie? Oh, wow. (laughs) That is really, that is an interesting question. I, I, I think it's one that deserves more thought than this. but I mean, maybe we answer but, it on the next but episode. But that's not but, the game that we're playing, yeah. so I think that's really fun. I think it's a good Wednesday question, too. Yeah, totally. Um, hmm, what would be the crime that I think hasn't been depicted that I would really like to see played out I mean, on? and it could be the crime, or it could be the the attempt of this movie, which is the effect of the crime on the community. Your community, maybe. The effect of the crime on on the the impact of a crime on a community, as opposed to a procedural about the investigation, doesn't have to be what I would do. Hmm. 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 Deep thoughts here at the TDPS. That I would like to make a movie about that hasn't been made a movie of. That is, I have to say, that is a tougher question than. Then I can answer in this. Again, I think part of the reason I don't have a ready answer is because I'm not really a nonfiction person. Yeah. So I, it's not something that I've given thought to before, and I'm sort of casting back um, through time. There are injustices mm. that might, like, you know, I, the Alan Turing thing um, the is certainly something that, that bears. I would really love to remake beautiful mind mm-hmm. um because that movie was a crime mm-hmm. um and i'd like to actually depict the character of the guy that was in question but that isn't really a crime movie um impact on the community that's hmm, that's really that's really challenging i there there's I'm gonna I have to. Have I'm gonna have to defer. Derek I'm gonna have to defer. I don't really have a ready answer to that. A crime that hasn't been pursued because my tendency would be, what story would I want to tell that's about that? Yes, and right. then that would become an original answer. Oh, that okay. Be, well, well, then that answer be, answer that. Way. That would be pick or- a crime that you would want to glean a story from. An original yeah. pitch, like there is a sequence in um, Torch Song trilogy. Hmm. And where he, in one of the acts, the Harvey Firestein character meets, falls in love with, and to the extent that it was possible in those days, marries another man. The, uh, the young man moves in with him, and they're incredibly happy together. And then the kid is coming home from the grocery store one oh, night, God. and he's beaten to death by thugs in the street with baseball bats. And that's a, that's the kind of, like... That impact on the community, having the community respond to that, mm-hmm. the insistence on 
not only solving that crime, but prosecuting it and getting right. justice for that, for the Harvey Firestein character and for the character who was murdered. That would be a more interesting crime story to me, even though it would be entirely fictional. Mm -hmm. It would depict crimes about which that was based, upon which that was based. Mm -hmm. But it would also, you know, tell a story that I think needs to be told. The, the notion of the inju injustice of that period of, towards people in my community is not much regarded. Mm -hmm. You know, we've kind of blown past it and moved on to new um, horizons of human rights, which I, good, I'm glad we're, right. we're still doing that. But there is a lot of that, like, I would love to do um, a movie version of Say Uncle now as a period piece, mm -hmm. you know, to look back on. This was a time when gay people were actually being taken to court and having their own actual children, mm -hmm. their natural children, taken away from them just because they were gay. Mm -hmm. You know, like, that isn't really... I don't think people necessarily think about the world in those terms, but that was the way the world was. That yeah. was the world I was presented with as my reality for most of my life. Mm -hmm. And it's changed now, but I think it's worth taking note of. And so those kinds of stories would be interesting to me uh, to tell, but they aren't necessarily... That's what I was trying to think of. Is there a particular crime that would fit into that framework? And... I think fictionalizing it would make it a more I, interesting I right. story to me. I think you're right. So what crime would you... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not taking any questions today. No, I, I was sitting here thinking that as a, my, in my memory, in my feel-bad nostalgia pipe, I vividly remember what it was like to be a young gay man going out to gay bars and being new to the any semblance or idea of a gay community when Andrew Cunanan was driving around the country killing people and mm. killing people, targeting people ultimately like Versace, although I should say Versace was in a victim class by himself when it came to Andrew Cunanan, yes. um, that were looked at as cultural leaders by my generation of gay men and that they were, they were putting forward an image of abundance and health and wealth and sex that we were sort of starry-eyed with you know versace clothes were like the shit for us and right. i was very small town at that point this was new orleans louisiana and the weird sense of having the media spotlight turned on us of having people say on the news that he was probably hiding among us as if we were all complicit in some cover-up for this horrible killer the fact that nothing about his story was directly connected to aids and that was really the media narrative around gay people at the point it was still the mid-90s or late 90s I, there was there was something about that time period that is creatively inspiring to me, wanting to write. That's just the barest hint of a story. I mean, there's no real story there. Um, but there was a rumor that he came through New Orleans. There was a rumor he got an HIV test at the AIDS task force in town. Everybody at the bar was talking about it. There was a sense that this phantom was stalking. But there was also a, an understanding pretty early on that he was a pathological liar. And in every gay communal setting I had been in, there had been an Andrew Cunanan. There had been someone whose stories were just too tall, who knew everybody, who had had tea with Barbara Walters last week and had sex with Elton John the next day. You know, like they were just always, and, and some, somehow they got fancy clothes and expensive watches and all this sort of stuff. He, was, he, was a, he had become a stock character in my universe. So there's, there's something there that I've always wanted to write about, but really I think the story I've always wanted to tell is someone who knows something pivotal, witnessed something about a horrible crime, 
and kept it a secret for years because it was the 70s or the early 80s, and revealing that information would have revealed that they were in a place that would have made it clear they were gay. And so as part of their own closet itself, yes. they held back information about a horrible crime, which is going to blow the doors off it 20, 30 years later. So anyway, that's... That's my best answer. But dealing with their own reasons yeah. for keeping it secret at the time and their own guilt for and their having own guilt. Yeah. yeah, that's a really fascinating story. That's a, yeah, that's and again, that becomes a fictional story. Exactly. Which, which is the reason I think fiction can often be a stronger story and is is way more interesting and compelling for me because you're really distilling it down to the essence of what it is you're trying to. True experiences are fascinating, but they are, you know, they're a known quantity. That yeah. movie about the post mm -hmm. with Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks was beautiful and beautifully well done, but I knew how that story went. Right. So it was ultimately not that interesting, yeah. but it was beautifully done. So we should pick the next region of the country we're going to visit on the True Crime Summer Movie Film Festival. So which ones time. are left, Christopher Rice? We have Southern Sins, we have Midwest Mayhem, and we have Pacific Northwest Nightmares. Well, I think we should go back through the middle of the country. Okay. And do Midwest Mayhem. Midwest Mayhem. All right, get ready for some Chicago stories. Get ready for some Elliot Ness stuff, maybe. We'll oh, have a production that meeting. That could be fun. Chicago yeah. definitely has its own. Chicago, uh, yeah. There's some stories to be Because we got to find there. a crime that's high profile enough that we can find a TV special about it, but also a movie about it. Preferably a movie we're going to want to sit through. Although well, we know, almost didn't make it the, this time. You know, but... You know, or last time, or <laughs> many of the times that we have done this, there's been quite a number of uh, yeah. movie pairings where we've at the end gone, "Oh my God, oh, that Jesus movie!" Christ, Jesus um, Christ. Yeah, so I don't know. I think oftentimes those make for better shows because there's more um, ink in the well, yes. if you will. Exactly. Well, until then and forever after, I'm Bob the Fairy. <laughs> I mean Christopher Rice, Chris the Fairy. Chris the Fairy, and I'm Eric the Fairy. And you've been listening to TDB, TDBS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks, fairies. This is TDPS.